know war is to know that there is still madness in this world. There are poor to be lifted up, and there are cities to be built, and there's a world to be helped. Yet, we do what we must. I'm hopeful, and I will try with best I can with everything I've got to end this battle and to return our sons to their desires. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. This is the Random History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Van Dyke, and you can reach us on Twitter or at our website, randomhistorypodcast.com. Welcome to episode three of the Polar Bear Expedition. Originally, I was thinking that this was only going to be a three or four part series. Now, um, given the fact that I haven't even started with the AEF, it seems like it might go on a little longer than that. For today, originally, I just wanted to talk about what was going on in the Western Front. And uh, in the next episode, talk about the state of Russia, well, the state of things in Russia. However, as things Progress and I started putting together the show plan, I found it we'd be better off just putting it together as opposed to having two shorter episodes. I'd just make one today that's just a little longer. So first, we'll start off talking about the Western Front. First, I think it's important to understand the state of things. Soldiers are becoming an increasingly rare commodity. So sending them into North Russia is a bit uh, it's a bit of a gamble on soldiers that are not easy to replace. At this point, uh, the troops that are being sent into Russia by the Allies, the war has been dragging on for over three years. Now, we're all told that the Americans in World War I played a small role, uh, but enough to push the Germans to peace. And by 1918, the Germans were ready to capitulate with or without the U.S. This was not true, though. Facts on the ground show that even as 1918 began, it was anyone's war to win. And in that scenario... Victory favors Germany because they had nothing to do really but hold their lines. The Germans were the ones in the Allied territory. Now, the rest of Germany's alliance was still standing. The Ottomans, who were the sick man of Europe, were still in the field. The Austrians were still in the field. They'd even stabilized their lines, though with some German help. This bears repeating. All the central powers had to do to win was stand their ground. It was the Allies who needed to move them. Moving the Central Powers was not going to happen going into 1918. Let me explain why this is a difficult, if not an impossible, task. Going into 1918, the United Kingdom had lost 2 million men. While it had 62 divisions on paper, they were all undermanned. Estimates are somewhere around they average 75% fighting strength. If this was not enough, the British had had enough. And they were about to call uncle on the ground war and had plans to reduce levels on the front to 30 or fewer divisions if the Americans did not arrive. This reduction to 30 or less divisions was not condensing their beleaguered divisions, but removing half of them from the field. 
At the end of 1917, the British launched a three-month offensive on Passchendaele, where losses totaled 300,000 to gain two miles of field. Who can blame them for looking at the old cost-benefit and thinking it was time for a change of plans? Especially when you consider the French at this point. The French had lost 3 million men and fielded around 110 divisions, but they were far from full fighting strength, and they were no longer being reinforced with with new recruits. There were no new recruits to be had. The French went as far as reducing a division from four regiments to three. When nations have lost so many men that they're no longer able to find recruitment-age men to pull from, and there's no real gains to show for it, well people might start questioning their government. The British were afraid of social revolution, perhaps thinking of Russia. We'll talk more on that later, though. And the French, they just plain stopped fighting, as in half the French army mutinied and just stopped taking orders from their officers. The Germans, they had lost 1.2 million to this point. Britain and France alone had lost 5 million men, and they just could not eject Germany from France. And the Germans spent 1.2 million lives throughout the entire, uh, on all the fronts, for the same effort. So while the Germans could not depend on the unlimited arms, like the Allies, as we discussed earlier, they did have the men to hold the arms they had. Now also, Germany had a terrific industrial base to put into war footing. They did have access to raw material, But perhaps most importantly for Germany, the Russians and Italians, well, by 1917, they were fatally crippled. This allowed Germany to move around 100 divisions to the Western Front. Now, the Germans finally had the upper hand in manpower for the first time. They now fielded three and a half million men to the combined two and a half million British and French troops that were on the front at this point. Just to add fire... Um, There was something that we rarely talk about. Um, It's really boring, but it's probably the most critical thing that has to do uh, with warfare, and that's logistics. The Germans just demonstrated an absolute mastery of this. I just said they moved 100 divisions from Russia and Italy and on the Western Front all around. They didn't have traffic jams. There weren't supplies waiting to catch up for the troops or any of that. If Germany was nothing else, they were efficient. Their march to France was a beautiful piece of choreography. I know it sounds crazy to say that, but Dan Carlin covers this on his uh, series on World War I, The Blueprint for Armageddon. Uh, The way he describes it, it is just amazing. Seriously, it's good stuff. Check it out. This mastery of logistics is also why they were able to withstand everything the Allies threw at them. The rail networks built behind were built behind as the troops marched forward. It was just brilliant. I mean, running behind many of the critical lines were four lines of track. They could move four divisions faster than the Allies could move one. So while the Germans had to divide their forces, this is why the Germans seemed to have every portion of their line reinforced at all times. They could move troops on demand and do so efficiently. Also, the German troops, they just always seem fresher. Um, you know, I really worked on how to how you quantify this, but I'm not really sure that you can quantify it. But perhaps I can paint a bit of a picture about it. Allied troops lived in the trenches. These mud-filled, disease-bearing, smoke-filled trenches, they just seemed to run on forever. They were basically just a ditch. 
And this was your cover from bullets and artillery. When the shells landed, you could just be buried alive. The psychological toll of this constant fear and bombardment, it just, it just must have been intense. The Germans, they didn't live in their trenches like their allied counterparts. They often had these underground bunkers that more resembled barracks uh, that gave them real protection. I, I, you can see the videos on some of these things. They're, they're just amazing. The Germans could sleep without real fear of death. If for three years sleep had been a luxury afforded only to the dead and high-ranking officers, it's fair to say you might not be at 100%. But what if your enemy could sleep on a semi-regular schedule and just had the peace of mind that they knew when their shift was over, they could go back to a safe place, play some cards, have a drink, and get a proper night's sleep. I mean, what kind of edge does that give your enemy? I don't know how to quantify that, but it has to mean something, right? I mean, it sounds like a big deal. I mean, I'm drained and tired just describing what trench warfare was, let alone sitting through it for three years. This must have been a factor. When in spring of 1918, the Germans began their spring offensive, they really wanted to push the war to an end before the U.S. could truly bolster the Allied ranks. They smashed 50 French divisions by June. The German advance did meet the Americans, and the Americans held their ground. Now, early on in spring uh, and early summer, the French supported the Americans with artillery, tanks, and air cover. But, I mean, the Americans weren't proven at this point. Now, I did say I would stay out of the Western Front and focus on the American Expeditionary Force in North Russia. The reason I did want to spend some time on the front, as I said in the outset, was I wanted to pick a, you know, just sort of paint this picture of why, you know, you'd want to take this gamble in Russia and why it seemed, you know, worth it to do. The Eastern Front needed to stay open so those 100 or so divisions could stay tied up. The British and French were not going to be able to resist being outnumbered by fresh troops, and the spring offensive showed the Germans could punch hard against the Allies. The Americans, though fresh, did not have the battle experience other nations had. Yes, the Battle of Katani did prove the Americans could fight, it could, but it didn't show that they could beat the Germans consistently. I mean, they did jump out of their trenches, they went and punched the Germans in the face, pushed them out of their fortified positions, um, held the town, even withstood multiple counterattacks. But could they do it consistently? We still didn't know. You know, one thing that could be guaranteed to make a difference would be reopening the Eastern Front. And this is where I want to take a moment, well, actually quite a bit of time here and kind of talk about uh, Russia. You know, earlier... I gave figures on casualties for the main belligerents, uh, with the exception of Russia. You know, there's a reason for that. I wanted to put this figure for Russia in context. I figured the, the section on sort of the state of things in Russia would be the proper place to do so. Russia suffered 5.5 million casualties, we think. The truth is, we don't know for sure. The Russians were not prepared for war. We do not know if the official Ru Russian figure of 16 million men totaled their entire manpower pool, or if that was just what was mobilized or what. 
Um, the Soviets uh, in the 20s estimated that, well, yeah, we had 16 million men, but only, you know, half of that were, you know, in fighting shape for the front. You know, the rest were sort of to be used as ancillaries and so on and so forth. But we still didn't know. To give you an idea of just how poor the Russian planning is, I mean, there's stories of obviously Russian soldiers starving in mass, um, as well as the population, but we'll get into that later. But also not even all the soldiers had guns, uh, just this crazy stuff. And, and if you can't get guns to soldiers, you know, record keeping is probably not going to be great. So to give you an idea of how this played out for Russia and, and, and why we're going to be talking about revolution, um, basically started off as a food riot is this. 5.5 million casualties. 500,000 soldiers are just missing, can't be accounted for. 3 million taken prisoner and 6 million refugees. Then, revolution. Given how history is taught, you might be forgiven to think that the communists under Lenin had a revolution overthrew the czar in 1917 and established this new government across the nation that supplanted the old. That's not really how it took place. Now I'm going to talk about the events in, in sort of a timeline and it's a bit confusing because, you know, the Russians have their own calendar that runs about 14 days behind. So, uh, you know, some of the things are going to be, labeled weird, like the June offensive that takes place in July and, you know, on our calendar and so on. Um, but I'm using the Western calendar dates, uh, but the proper names of, um, the, you know, how they are translated into English. So the, the, for that, some of the stuff might sound a little weird. Um, but on International Women's Day, March 8th on our calendar, a, a woman's march was uh, quickly joined by men that became a bread demonstration. Uh, I mean, the army was starving. People were starving. The economy was just, it was, everything was just absolutely trashed. All the creaky, barely, barely, you know, barreling through economy that was in state, just everything had just collapsed, right? So this small little Women's Day march turned into a general strike that included 90,000 people in the capital, Petrograd, modern day St. Petersburg. On March 10th, the demonstrators on March 10th, the demonstrators straight burned down police stations. Some factories even went as far as electing uh, people to the Soviet of workers. Soviet is just a word for council. It's not how we think of it today as the you know Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. This actually followed the path of the 1905 revolution. Uh, that resulted in, among other things, Russia gaining a parliament called the Duma, though Tsar Nicholas did often dissolve it when it impeded him. So revolutionaries, and there's a lot of them at this point, um, are not really paying that close of attention. Because again, this is just following the 1905 path of how you get recognition from the Tsar and get some things addressed. So to our modern ears, this might sound, oh, this, this piques my interest. It's, it's, not that, it's not that crazy. This is following a set path. Now, on March 11th, the garrison of Petrograd was sent out to shut down the protests. They opened fire on the demonstrators, killed about 1,300 people, which is a lot, but there's also 90,000 of them protesting. But the thing is, they didn't stop. And, and this is the critical part. 
The next day on the 12th, the garrison defected to the side of the demonstrators. And they said, hell with it. We're going to elect our own members to this new Soviet for the city. By March 14th, large swaths of the nation's military had defected. And on March 15th, Tsar Nicholas II, realizing that the military was gone, there was nothing left for him, he actually abdicated the throne and um, did so in favor of his brother Mikhail, who then refused the crown. Now, at the same time, when Tsar Nicholas abdicated, he also took his son out of um, out of the line of succession and and then appointed his brother, who you know, as I said, refused. This is important, you know, for a variety of reasons, but. Uh, you know, the one, you know, that I've talked about before, you know, why the Russians even got involved in it is because they're the Third Rome. Well, with this, the Third Rome had fallen and the empire was no more. The Duma then started working with the Soviet. And in April, uh, Lenin leaves his exile in Switzerland. He hops on a train um, that takes him through Germany to Russia. Now, there's some things going on here where now we know that uh, Germany kind of, you know, helped Lenin out, not only provided that, you know, transport to Russia, but also uh, arms and cash and some other things, just kind of on a lark to see what he could do. Um, by the way, one of the biggest, uh, you know, low risk, high reward payoffs that's ever occurred in history, right? Uh, too bad, though, it didn't end up helping. Um, obviously, as the end, um, Germany did still lose the war. Um, but this is where things start moving much quicker. Now, also on April 2nd, you know, keep in mind, this is when the U S joined the war. So at this point in our timeline, the U S just declared war on May 1st, a telegram from Russia to the allies says that Russia intends to stay in the war because everyone wants to know with all this revolution going on, the czar abdicating what's going on. And the foreign secretary sends this telegram to the allies saying, hey, we're staying in the war. Unfortunately, though, this telegram is leaked uh, and an additional and additional protests um, pop up. And of course, this results in support moving from the provisional government to the Soviet. Now, again, the Soviet at this point is not the Bolsheviks. Now, the foreign secretary that sent that message, he resigns. And oddly enough, the fact that that foreign secretary resigned gave some legitimacy to the provisional government. And some of these splinter revolutionary groups, they actually opt to join the provisional government. The Russians then begin the June offensive on the 1st of July. Remember what I said about the calendar? Yeah, anyhow. Um, of course, also throughout history, this this these different calendars ended up being armies showing up on the wrong dates and stuff to join in battle, and it caused all kinds of problems. But um, essentially, that like I said, the calendar is two weeks behind. So this offensive that begins on the 18th of June in the Russian calendar, amazingly, through all this that's going on, this Russian offensive is actually effective. Uh, however, soldiers are given the orders um, from the soldier Soviet. Uh, to disobey their officers. So they just stop fighting. And then a lot of them are like, we, there's these rumors going on in Petrograd that talks about land redistribution. So it's time to leave. Let's take part in that. So the offensive stalls out and of course collapses. And the soldiers though are forced to respond because of course the Austrians counter and the Germans smelling blood in the water join in. 
on July 16th through the 20th. Now, armed protests against the provisional government rise up in Petrograd. In Livlov, the provisional government leader steps down, and he's replaced by Kerensky. Now, he goes out and he puts down the protests. He was not playing around. He stomped them out. And he also, at the same time, reintroduces the death penalty. But, you know, just to kind of balance things out, he also gives women the right to vote and stand and hold office. He then issues an order of arrest for Lenin, who just flat out disappears. Just gone. Now, this failed revolt results in the Soviet expulsion from the provisional government. Remember, at this point, the Soviet and the Duma, the provisional government, uh, the technocrats, you know, they're kind of trying to work together in this sort of dual government thing, right? Now, on September 9th, General um, Kornilov, who is the commander of the Russian army, he attempts this coup. Now, though the general stated purpose is, of course, to march on Petrograd, only to stomp out the Bolsheviks. Now, the prime minister, that's I guess the title he's giving himself now, Kerensky paints Kornilov as this leader of a right-wing coup, which, I mean, he is, right? Yet, it's the Bolsheviks who come out ahead by undermining the credibility of the provisional government by implying the provisional government was in on it. While we may never know, all appearances were that this was just a plain old regular coup, you know, where the general puts himself in charge. But the truth is what you make it, right? And the 14th of September, the one thing that everyone agrees on, apparently all sides, is that Russia is now a republic, period, right? But this is where things start to get even more hazy. I know, hazier. Sheesh. The October Revolution, which again, due to the Russian calendar, takes place on the 7th and 8th of November. Um, on the 7th, the Bolsheviks seize control of the capital, Petrograd, and on the 8th, the Bolsheviks take the Winter Palace where the remaining members of the provisional government are hiding. The same day, the Bolsheviks abolish private property and begin to redistribute land. They propose an immediate withdrawal from the war and reabolish the death penalty. On the 9th, the Bolsheviks begin censorship, calling the press a tool of the bourgeoisie. Now, that's kind of funny, given the fact that the telegram that started this whole thing was leaked to the press, and the press... <sighs> Anyhow, it's about a convenience, I suppose, when you're in charge, the press is a problem. Now, on the 25th, elections take place with the Soviet Revolutionaries Party gaining the largest share. Now, you're like, oh, of course. I mean, the socialists, they take over, right? Here's the thing. That's a party that's not the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks got less than 25% of the vote. So... On the 15th of December, Russia agrees to this uh, ceasefire, a peace deal with the Central Powers. Now, on January, the new elected assembly meets for the first time. And, you know, it's a republic. They held free and fair elections. Everything is great. And in this very first meeting, it's promptly dissolved by the Bolsheviks. They're like, yeah, I don't think so. So, I mean, I guess so much for a republic. On the 28th, the new uh, Council of the People's Commissars meets and they form a new national army. They call it the Red Army. So that's where that term comes from. Then on the 14th of February, 1918, they do something terrific. Now, that's not for them, for me and for other people that try to study this. They make everyone's life easier and just adopt the Western calendar, the Gregorian calendar. So now when I give dates, there's not a confusing bit of two dates, you know, the Russian and then the Western date, right? 
So on March 3rd, Russia uh, agrees to a peace treaty, and it finds that the peace treaty with the Central Powers is painful. I'm talking painful. They lose a third of their population and rail network, half their industry, three quarters of their iron, and 90% of their coal reserves, and a huge swath of their farmland. Now, this loss and pain that it causes will be remembered. Now, after the Second World War, the Soviets occupy all of Eastern Europe. A large chunk of that is the land that they lost in the First World War. So we really shouldn't be that surprised that they don't give it up and um, they sort of create it into satellites later on. I mean, again, history is about cause and effect, right? So now on the 17th of July, Tsar Nicholas... Uh, I don't know if you remember him, you know, the former czar that abdicated a few months back. Yeah, well, he abdicated to the provisional government that no longer exists in favor of uh, a republic that's been dissolved and the Bolsheviks then created their own thing. Anyway, they now execute um, Tsar Nicholas and family. I'm not sure about that whole no death penalty thing anymore, but this is important. You know, this entire time we've been discussing Russia as in from the front to the capital in St. Petersburg, Petrograd. Now, this is where there is the effective government we're talking about. Now, Central Russia, the Eastern Russia, like, you know, towards the Pacific Ocean, Northern Russia, like Siberia, Southern, like the Caucasus, um, and even really Western parts between the front and the capital, they're not under the control of the Bolsheviks. Um, also, forgot to tell you, the Bolsheviks now officially changed their name to the Russian Communist Party a week before they killed the Tsar. They also moved the capital to Moscow. Apparently, they didn't feel Petrograd was that easy to hold either. So, also, this is when the AEF and friends um, start arriving in Russia, is right now. Um, you know, they're, officially, they have orders to... Um, connect with the Czech Legion, that's a whole thing, and uh, secure the supply depots where the Allies sent supplies for the Russian armies to fight the Germans. Um, that's the official mission, right? Um, in August, Lenin telegrams the communists in central Russia and complains about the uprisings there and, and tar just tell them, hey, start killing people, uh, specifically wealthy peasants. Um, so again, so much for the abolition of the death penalty. But also on August 30th, there's an attempt on the life of Lenin. Now, this results in the first purge of many to come in the new communist Russia. So I think this is a good place to leave things before next time. And next time, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of the American Expeditionary Force in North Russia. I promise you. I know that's why you've been listening this whole time. And we're also going to find out some other things. Um, like... What the heck the troops are supposed to be doing there, what their orders are, and I can assure you, you're probably going to be just as confused as they are as to what they're supposed to be doing, and what the heck a lost Czech legion is doing in Siberia, you know, northern Russia. Um, anyway, until next time, I do look forward to seeing you again. And there are even a few say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lassie, Berlin in common. Let them come.
wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. This has been a Random History production. Find us at randomhistorypodcast.com.